Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I am joined by my friend Pete to talk about strong women in Hollywood movies in the 80s and now. So last week, directors James Cameron and Patty Jenkins of Terminator and Wonder Woman fame got into a spat online about whether Wonder Woman is a strong female character or just another show of money-grubbing Hollywood sexual objectification of women. A lot of us have been watching this incredulously and my friend Pete told me he thinks there's actually great depth to this question because it goes to what makes for a strong woman character, which should be a big question for the movies. This is how we prepared this podcast and so let me turn this over to you, Pete. How do you think about this quarrel and the question it opens up? Well, I think both Jenkins and Cameron have a point. I think Jenkins retreated to a fairly weak argument. I think she's a strong argument in defense of her movie. Her argument that you don't understand her role because it's a woman, I think it's a cop-out. But I think when we look at all the praise about Wonder Woman as a strong female character and how this is relatively rare in Hollywood, I think it's fair to look at strong female characters earlier in other movies, even a generation ago, and compare them to Wonder Woman and see what makes a strong female character and what might James Cameron have been thinking about when he criticized Wonder Woman as an objectified icon. Good place to start would be two movies that have female leads that aren't actually remembered as being female leads in our cultural memory. We'll start with Nightmare on Elm Street and First Terminator movie. Two very similar stories about female protagonists who are ultimately responsible for resolving the threat that they're facing, both in fear of their lives and ultimately they, rather than some male character, has to be the salvation through personal growth and confronting the threat. Good place to start when talking about uh, Patty Jenkins, James Cameron's back, because James Cameron directed one of those movies and the other movie, Nightmare on Elm Street, came out almost exactly the same time. Yes, these are both 1984 movies. They feature protagonists right at the border between the last baby boomers and the first Gen Xers. So that's an interesting way to think about young adults and teenagers and how they experienced the problem of responsibility for oneself, of being free in America, which in a certain sense, in bad circumstances or when something bad happens, can start feeling like you're alone and nobody understands you. But this is, of course, typical of being a hero or a protagonist. So social reflection and movie making have a natural fit here. It's not hard to see why Wes Craven, who directed and wrote Nightmare on Elm Street and James Cameron's breakout movie, Terminator, have this intuition that there's a great story here. I think that's all definitely true. Teen coming-of-age movies are relatively common, but both directors put, I think, a very interesting spin on the story. For example, in Nightmare on Elm Street. When people think of Nightmare on Elm Street, what character do they think about first? Freddy Krueger. Uh, but there's a lot of Freddy Krueger movies that really aren't very good. We don't really care about Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Nightmare on Elm Street 5, Nightmare on Elm Street, whatever. They don't really work. And that's because the center of the first, the good movie, isn't Freddy Krueger. It's Nancy Thompson. She's the real protagonist. Now, critics describe Nightmare on Elm Street as being about adolescence. That's fair, but it's inexact. It's not just about what is it like to not be a child and not be an adult. It's the fear that the transition to adult will be a failure. That's the theme. These kids do not feel like they will be able to become functioning adults, and the failure of that transition will ultimately destroy them. Remember Freddy because his design is great. The ratty sweater, the combination of the hat, the melted face, the razor claws. But he's only a symbol of the danger that these kids are facing. The real dangers are the social expectations from their parents and their friends that's going to prevent them from becoming an adult. Yes, and just look at this villain. He is literally the image of what these kids fear ending up as, a hobo. Yep, he's a hobo, and look at some of the deaths that these kids have. Yeah, so the first to bite is Tina. She dies in a sexual assault. Her boyfriend dies in a jailhouse suicide. The themes here of what happens when you step out of the adolescent world and what will happen when you die are right there on the surface. But I also think that one of the problematic interpretations of the movie is there's an overemphasis on sex. Now, I think sex is important. The scene where she's in the bathtub and the claw comes out, it's symbolically powerful. But I think it's only one element of the fears that the movie is presenting. Now, fear itself is a symbol of a general fear of the inability to handle adult responsibility. They won't be able to handle sex well, but they won't be able to handle anything well. 
we always hear this interpretation of horror movies that the girl who doesn't have sex lives and therefore that's what makes her survive but what makes nancy distinctive isn't that she's not having sex with johnny depp it's that she's the only teenager in the movie who takes responsibility for her life her friends do not take responsibility because her friends refuse to grow up and that gets them all killed. There's a scene in the third act where Nancy specifically has that conversation with Johnny Depp's character that she's studying. She's trying to figure out what to do because that's how she's going to survive. She survives and her boyfriend doesn't. It's because she accepts responsibility. She becomes an adult. She handles her problem and he doesn't. Yeah, you can see this kid. It's not enough for him to have headphones on listening to music all day. He wants to have a screen in front of him too. A complete image of trying to isolate yourself from a world that you don't really feel ready for. What his girlfriend is asking him to do as he sneaks into her upper story room is to stay awake, to wake her up, to be reliable in the most basic way that relates to time and the schedule, and he just can't get himself to do it. He wants to be absent from his own life. I think that's absolutely true, and it ties into one of the interpretations that I think are correct, but once again off-center, that the real villains of Nightmare on Elm Street are the parents. People usually interpret it as the parents don't listen, the parents are alcoholics or otherwise incompetent, but the problem is not that the parents are incompetent. The problem is the adults are infantilizing. They're holding back relevant information from their kids. They're encouraging their kids to take naps. They're giving them drugs to help them avoid dealing with their problem. They're generally trying to take the load off their kids, and this is what it's going to destroy their kids. And I think Freddy is, to some extent, just a symbol for this fear that this upper-middle-class life is going to leave these kids unprepared for life after adolescence. That's perfectly true. If there's any kind of problem is that these people want Elm Street to be a perfect paradise as if there's no sequel to it. As if the kids will never have to see any other part of America. Just these nice streets and the manicured lawns and the painted houses and all that kind of predictability, reliability and safety. It seems the parents themselves can't deal with the fact that the kids might fail, that the kids are going to have to face risks, that they're not in control. They're trying to control the environment for their kids because they know they're not ultimately in control of their kids. But of course, there's no happy end to that response to anxiety and fear than having to let your kids go. The parents don't like the fact that the kids are already tuning out in certain ways, and the kids don't like the fact that the parents are always trying to fix stuff so much that the kids experience their own dark passions only as nightmares and as utterly irrational. That's ultimately the psychological problem with this version of comfortable, prosperous suburbia. They make children feel they're insane if they're angry. Why should you be angry in paradise? How could you be so ungrateful? Oh, yeah, and it also makes them feel helpless because they are unprepared for the real and inevitable problems of life. Now, keep in mind, this Elm Street seems perfectly safe because they're suppressing the knowledge of this child murderer. And by suppressing the knowledge of evil, this knowledge of danger, they're making them helpless. Once again, Freddy Krueger is a symbol of crime. He's a symbol of all kinds of other difficulties that kids would face as they enter into adulthood. A nightmare of those because not having seen them, not having confronted them in the course of growing up, they aren't able to imagine them in their proper proportions or imagine themselves being competent to deal with those problems. Yes. Um, I'm going to talk about Ben Sass's book. Oh, sure. Have you read Ben Sass's new nope. book? Nope. I've heard some of his, his interviews about it and some reviews, but that's it. Sam Goldman wrote probably the best review of the book. It was only published yesterday on the internet, where basically he said it's a pretty good self-help book for upper middle class parents to help their upper middle class kids to face adversity and to grow, but it's largely worthless for the other 70 or 80% of American parents and children who he doesn't address and doesn't even seem to imagine exist. That's exactly right. That's what it but, sounds like. Uh, but it's a lot of the same anxieties that you see in Nightmare on Elm Street, that American parents are making their millennial kids too soft. And you see a lot of it in Nightmare on Elm Street where baby boomers are making their Generation X kids too soft. It's just the difference that there's a transference of anxiety. In Nightmare on Elm Street, it's the kids who think that the parents are making them too soft, whereas in Ben Sass's book, he fears that parents are making the kids too soft and the kids are perfectly comfortable. 
not taking on any challenges. But one thing I would like to talk about that will come to later as a theme of both Terminator and Nightmare on Elm Street is that Nancy's change in the course of a movie is that she goes from a woman that doesn't have to worry about responsibility, a girl, to a woman who is responsible for her safety. And it's not exactly fair to say that Wes Craven doesn't sexualize her at all, but doesn't sexualize her gratuitously. Mm -hmm. She's not running around in miniskirts or mm -hmm. overly tight tops. She's dressed, I don't want to say modestly, but we have a common phrase now that didn't exist then, the male gaze where it's camera leers at a woman the camera very rarely leers at nancy let's talk about the changes in the plot how nancy doesn't just survive but she becomes an adult yeah over the course of the movie nancy takes initiative to learn about why the world is broken she has to research Freddy Krueger because nobody is going to tell her. She has to research how to fight in her dreams. Okay, it's a fantastic plot element, but nobody is going to tell her. She has to not take the drugs that her parents give her. At every level of the plot, what makes Nancy really admirable isn't that she fights Freddy Krueger. It's that she's constantly fighting against these social forces. Everything around her is trying to force her to be irresponsible. That is the real process of her growth. Now, at one point, it's symbolized. She gets a streak of gray hair to show that she's growing up early. But the transitioning into an adult in a world where everyone around her, from her teachers to her friends to her parents to the police, would prefer that she be irresponsible, partly because it would be easier for them. They think it would be easier to protect her, where she understands that failing to grow up actually makes her helpless. You can see again how the protagonist and the writer-director have a natural alliance if America turns into the kind of comfortable, peaceful suburbia that these parents want, and at some level all parents want, then there's no story left to tell. And then that means that at some level you have to help the young people liberate themselves from this kind of smothering, stifling protectiveness. You can't have too much of a good thing, and the more you push to give kids too much of a good thing, the more the natural reaction in both kid and storyteller is to push in the contrary direction. The more you want to turn suburbia into paradise, the more you get the reaction of looking for hell in a nightmare. The dog, in a sense, is about learning not to go too far in the opposite direction. Whatever people think about Wes Craven, his intention was not to unleash dark fantasies or to get kids to think crazy thoughts. He was not trying to make social pathologies worse. He was just trying to tell people, you have two options. One of them is dealing with these nightmares and treating them as adults. The other one is whatever crazy thing comes if you don't deal with it. And also one of the themes is that human dark passions are universal. If you don't learn how to deal with them, they will emerge. And that vice is always just around the corner. You have to be able to deal with both internal fears and external dangers. But that's also one of the reasons why people remember Nightmare on Elm Street as being a good movie, even if they don't necessarily articulate it. What they remember from the later Freddy movies are some of his sadistic jokes or the creative ways that he kills people. Those, I don't think, really touch any chords among the public. Because the first Nightmare on Elm Street isn't really about Freddy. It's about how do we deal with change as we grow up. Nancy and her friends demonstrate different ways of dealing with that change. The first boy that's killed deals with it through violence. We see him pull a switchblade on Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp deals with it from retreating from danger and hoping his parents will take care of it. Nancy deals with it by actually becoming an adult. What makes Nightmare on Elm Street good is the journey of Nancy. Yes, I completely agree with this, and even the early scenes show that this girl is at some level trying to be an adult. Just like with John Carpenter's Halloween, a young woman who is not sexually active is not supposed to have some kind of magical chastity or virginity. There are other things to concern yourself with in life. Turning 17 or 18 is not being simply under the control of your hormones, which is another kind of excuse that adults make. It's not enough for adults to protect you and smother you up until you cannot take your own anger or fear seriously as a human passion. They also want to make certain kinds of excuses for the stuff they can't control. Oh, you know, kids will be kids. Young people will do what young people do, as though there is nothing else available to kids. They could not, of themselves, try to grow up, try to learn things, try to imitate adults. This comes out late in the movie, when Nancy as much as calls her mother a drunkard. That's a complaint not so much about the vice her mother indulges, but about the neglect that creates. It's about the fact that a kid can't trust a drunkard parent, not that drinking is a bad thing in itself. That again is about what's absent in this girl's life, guidance about how to become an adult. She doesn't want to be the kind of person that has nothing on her mind but irresponsibility. She doesn't think that dumb fun is all there is to life. 
It's not some magical chastity. It's about trying to become a rounded human being. Correct, and I think the theme of drugs is actually very important in the movie in understanding Nancy's maturity. It's not just that Nancy won't have sex with Johnny Depp. When her mother tries to give her drugs to deal with her emotional problems, Nancy refuses for the same reason she refuses to have sex with Johnny Depp. She understands on one level that these problems cannot be pilled away. One of the reasons her mother is a partial failure as an adult is her mother believes she can self-medicate the problems of adulthood away. She's trying to have her daughter do the same thing. The theme of drugs in adulthood is at least as important as the problem of sex in adulthood because ultimately they're different aspects of the same problem. Yeah, fun would be the way to escape, to try to perpetuate adolescence and therefore escape the burden of dealing with how uncertain adulthood really is. This is part of American freedom. Your parents do not give you your future. They try to give you a good chance or an opportunity or the best they can, but they cannot give you your future. You do not take up the job of your parents or the occupation, much less a place. Adulthood is just much scarier than it would be in a society with closer links between family and business. The burden adults face is this uncertainty about what does it mean to release your child into freedom. The drugs and the sex are just ways to say you could try to avoid it. You could try to not face up to adult responsibilities. You could try to revert to childhood, which is another form of self-medication. Like it or not, adolescents have dreams, they do want to make something of themselves. There are possibilities that they're trying to pursue to make them actualities. But all of this comes with a lot of risk and a lot of ignorance. You could, on the other hand, go back to childhood. That's what drinking or getting drugs or having fun, having sex is about. It cancels time. You're no longer aware of the future, the consequences of your actions, and all the burdens of being a human being. You're right, especially in the theme of, I think these kids are supposed to be about 15 or 16 years old. Having seen Nightmare on Elm Street, I can't remember any of these kids having any clear idea what they want to do when they grow up. What job, what career they want to follow. Which just makes, once again, the transition of adulthood that much scarier. It's that much of a leap into the unknown. They don't know what skills they're going to have. Presumably they would go to college, but they don't know what they would study in college. Everything outside of this protective circle is completely unknown. Freddy Krueger, in the context of this movie, stands in for everything on the other side of that protective circle. There's another nice image that suggests this. The nightmare world of Freddy Krueger. What is it? Hard, bruising, dangerous, but incredibly skillful industrial work. Right. It's the industrial hidden part of a modern building. In a modern building, you have all the functional stuff that's there for you to use in an ignorant way. But somewhere underneath, the real work gets done. And that's where all of the nightmare stuff happens. And not only that, Freddy is low status. He represents an underside of American society that they never see, they don't understand, and not understanding it, it uh, reaches nightmare proportions rather than existing at human scale. Freddy was a janitor. Yep. The kids are all upper middle class. He is a low status individual who, just not at all coincidentally, happens to be a child killer who was expelled from this world of the middle class parents when they killed him. But in expelling Freddy Krueger personally, they can't expel the threat because the threat is ultimately human. And suppressing the knowledge of this person ultimately fails because the reality will always win out and knowledge of evil will always leak through. Except instead of the kids learning about it in a responsible way that allows them to manage these fears. Evil exists in a distorted way that they don't know how to handle because no one ever taught them how to handle it. Yep, it's hard to even think of evil as human because you never experience it among human beings. It's hushed up in various ways. The fact that there's a guilty secret about shedding blood about a murder is so important in the plot because that's the only thing about justice in this entire story. This is what American parents want to hide from their kids, the necessity for justice and therefore the most obvious justification for violence. And that means that they want their kids to live in a world where the dark passions never can be channeled in any useful direction. It's a good insight and it still is the case of course that nobody wants to think about when might violence be necessary. America is a country that promotes the ideology of violence is never the solution. It seems so pious in a middle class way. Of course violence is never the solution. What are we savages? But violence is what solved the problem of safety for these people. And they're ashamed of it. They don't want to admit to their kids that evil could happen in suburbia. This is a big theme of the horror. Suburbia is based on a preference for respectability over innocence. Respectability forces you to say there is no evil among us. It could never happen to us. There is evil somewhere, presumably. We've heard about it. It's maybe on the news, but it's not of us because our hearts are pure. 
And that fake innocence, which is mere respectability, forces kids into the situation where they deal with their passions by seeking out nightmares in one way or another, by dehumanizing themselves by various distractions, because they cannot take themselves seriously as human beings with good and evil both in their hearts. In being forced to play out their parents' fantasy, they lose some of their own humanity. Yeah, they aren't able to understand the dark passions in front of themselves, but they also can't confront difficulties that are external. The parents know that evil existed in their community because they dealt with it badly, as it turned out. But they dealt with it. But then they hid the knowledge from their kids. The parents try to keep the kids away from knowledge of evil in the world. But since their kids ultimately learn it, how do they confront it? How do they confront it in themselves? Most of them try to run away from it. But at the end of the day, one of the major anxieties of the movie is that upper middle class parents are not teaching their kids how to become responsible adults. That they're not going to be gritty. They're not going to be self-controlled. They're not going to be able to make good decisions. And Freddy ultimately is a symbol of them failing. Yep, the problem at this level is about entitlement. If you bring up your kids to treat rare achievements as simply something to take for granted, simply the background to your life, they will never understand how much hard work goes into it and the relationship between work and safe comfort or prosperity in a person's life and in the life of a community, of course. This is a world isolated from work in a certain sense. What does work mean for these children? That their parents are absent and unavailable to them as parents. It's purely a negative thing, like when Nancy is trying to get the attention of her policeman father who just wants her to shut up and stop being a bother because he's got work to do. The fact that they could both belong to the world of work, like they both belong to the world of family, that she might have something to say to him that he should be paying attention to, just never enters into the story. Work has been cut off and with it all achievement. Kids are inevitably going to be thrust into that world, but they'll be going in blind. That is exactly correct, where the world of work is as much unguided as any other part of the world they live in. This actually elevates to a surreal level at the climax. The police are investigating the murder of Johnny Depp across the street from Nancy, and she's screaming out of her window that the murderer is there, and one of the police officers is like, hey, calm down, little girl, we're investigating a murderer here, while, <laughs> while she's screaming about the murderer being in her house. I mean, obviously, I don't think the audience is intended to take the police officer's behavior literally. I think at that point, the behavior of the adults has slipped from satirical to outright nightmare logic. But keep in mind, the adults have literally barred her windows and locked the door to keep her in a house that is safe. The police are ignoring her pleas for help. In the course of trying to protect her, the adults have left her entirely on her own. It's actually a really effective use of symbolism. Yes, and it affects the last part of the logic of the horror movie. The preference for respectability over innocence inevitably ends up producing or promoting violence to innocence. These people are so invested in saying the home is a sacred safe place that they will let anything happen there and look the other way because they can't take the evidence of their senses or the evidence of their human hearts in which there is evil. You cannot have the home be a pure and perfect place. You want the best for family and kids but you have to be aware that there is evil in this world and therefore there will be evil in the family home too. Being so desperate to say no no we have walled this off. We have gated this off from evil. Evil shall not enter in here ends up at least promoting and provoking evil to take place there with impunity almost. And it produces helpless victims, which is one of the themes of the movie. Nancy, it takes an extraordinary act of will by her to become a responsible adult, whereas her boyfriend, Johnny Depp, across the street, no matter how many times he's told, refuses to take responsibility, and he dies spectacularly. One of the great horror movie deaths of all time. What happens when he dies? He is sucked into the bed he shouldn't be sleeping in. What else is sucked into him? His headphones and his movie are also sucked into the bed. He thought he could cocoon himself with these distractions, and instead it produces an explosion. It blows up his life. Yep, you see a human life torn apart into this dichotomy of you have to ignore everything that makes human beings human by distractions, and this orgy of destruction. Everything bad just comes together in this impossible way that's also part of nightmare logic. If you try so hard to literally hear no evil and see no evil or anything in the world around you, this is what you get. This problem with helplessness shows where the horror movie properly understood stands to the great quarrels in American society about how to live in the 60s and 70s. Neither John Carpenter nor Wes Craven nor any of the real authors of horror side with the hippies. 
these people are not about the counterculture. They do not love the world of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But on the other hand, they cannot really side with the world of suburban respectability either. They agree with the hippies that there's actually a lot wrong with this world and kids should go out and experience with the world. But they also agree with the suburban parents that what you should be looking for is a form of adulthood, not tune in, drop out, and so forth. Halloween, which I think is a very strong influence on both Nightmare on Elm Street and Terminator. At the climax, Nancy saves herself. She's not saved by somebody else. One of the things that Wes Craven wanted to change from Halloween in the structure of the story, it's not the babysitter surviving until somebody else can save her. The female protagonist triumphing in the end. It's not even fair to say that she overcame the superhuman threat by herself. She overcame the superhuman threat while constantly blocked by every other force in her society. Yeah, not only that, she wants to save her mother as well. That's correct. At some point, I think this kind of heroism gets out of hand. That's almost inevitable because, as you pointed out, the story turns from a plot to the working out of certain symbols made recognizable and that capture your attention. And you can think through it and think, oh yeah, this makes a lot of sense, actually. But at some point, you lose the plot. That's how all of this thing turns into a superhero girl and a superhuman threat. It is Nancy against the world. Whereas in John Carpenter's Halloween, you have a girl that's about as panicked about the fact that nothing in the world around her makes sense, but is still caught up within a certain realism of storytelling. This is not about symbols, ultimately. Halloween is different. The adults are far more absent. This is a world where there are no adults, but at the same time, there are cops. There's a scientist shrink and the cop who are actually looking for evil to protect the neighborhood. They're just incompetent about it and it's not clear how exactly they could do more. Halloween is much more of an examination of the studied helplessness of suburban society than a study of the effect it has on the adolescents. You still have a protagonist that's a junior or a senior and is trying to be responsible but is also trying to have some fun. She's trying to have friends but she's also trying to study and to grow up and things don't work out for her. She rapidly becomes alone in this rapidly degenerating situation and there's nobody she can appeal to. And she even has responsibility for children which is the show of adulthood in Halloween as opposed to the absence of anything like that in Nightmare on Elm Street. So there's much less individualism. The young woman in Halloween has to deal with all the problems of suburban adolescence, but she doesn't actually have to become a superheroine and the symbol of triumphing over all that. She's not quite as alone. Also, at the end of the day, she's rescued by an adult. Because and America, but... in that case, is just a bit more reasonable. Halloween insists that this is not simply America. This is closer to America on Halloween. In the world of suburbia, where everything is nice and safe, what do kids love? Horror. They love a good scare. Evil has turned into an entertainment for Americans, and it takes a horror movie maker to try to fix that. Because this is not a realistic way of dealing with the world. Halloween suggests just how pervasive the problem is. You go from one house to another and you hear the continuity of the same picture everybody's watching on TV. What do all Americans have in common? They love a good scare, but they can't take evil seriously. It's amazing, just like the scenes about the boy trying to scare the little girl, even though the boy is himself scared of the boogeyman. You can't shake off the problems with the natural passions. They already emerge in children. The girl wants to be comforting of the boy. The boy wants to scare her. And you see this problem with fear and anger already starting out with children. But even there, it's not taken seriously. It's just something the poet can point out to you as an audience. And John Carpenter does seem to have made the effort to start this criticism of suburbia in the horror movie. There's a scene in the cemetery where they're looking for a specific grave as part of the investigation and the grave digger casually says every town has something like this happen about the horrific murder of a teenage girl by her young brother, the madness that sets off the horror in Halloween. But everybody shushes. You hear contra the grave digger, the cop playing shocked respectability to the shrink who tells him there's real evil. What does the cop say? Haddonfield? Do you know what Haddonfield is? Families, children, all lined up in rows up and down these streets. It turns out that it's not just everything all-American 
an American apple pie on every windowsill. It's not just all the good things in life, they're apparently lined up in rows up and down the streets. It's almost mass-produced, geometrically regularized. That's how good good is in American suburbia. This is parodic almost, but the guy says it with all of earnestness. So there are these suggestions in the stories that people were set up for this from the beginning. When everything bad happens, it is shushed up. Why? Because these people insist so much on their respectability. That's their sense of control over good things in life. At the same time, what does the gravedigger say? Oh yeah, somebody robbed the headstone from a grave. Yeah, kids do that. Then the cops look at the robberies in a store. Who stole knives and rope and Halloween masks? Oh, kids did that. Apparently adults are at some level aware that kids are somehow tied up with evil, but they want to dismiss it. Oh, it's just something kids do. And also, how is evil expressed in the movie? Think about actual and the embodiment of evil in the movie physically. The kid is removed from the neighborhood and is put into an institution. And everyone thinks that the problem is now solved. But the kid escapes from the asylum on Halloween. And even at the end of the movie, where Michael Myers is killed, but then he escapes, evil is still out there somehow. The movie begins with the failed attempt to localize and exercise evil. Yep. And ends with the understanding that even though Nancy was saved in the moment, evil has really gone anywhere there's no resolution where we don't have to worry about it anymore all we have is the characters now recognizing that it's something they have to look out for a threat they have to address going forward in ways that aren't necessarily predictable yep this relationship you find in john carpenter's halloween evil is there in a child and at the end you still have to defend suburbia but you just learn that evil is a part of the world I mean, this is exactly the situation in the biblical story of of the flood. God decides to destroy mankind precisely, he says, because that's all there is in man's mind, evil. And then when he spares mankind, he says, well, you know, it starts when they're kids. Evil is natural to man. Evil is not a sufficient reason to destroy mankind. We live in the flip side world where good is natural to mankind and we can't admit any evil in our nature. But the movie gives you the exact same reasoning. Yes, it does start when you're a kid, but you still have to defend people even if there's something evil in them. You just have to be more realistic about this world. And maybe the most shocking suggestion is the parallel transformation of the shrink and the young girl, Lori. The shrink says, I spent the first eight years of 15 trying to fix the child who is evil. And I spent the next seven years trying to keep him locked up. At some point, the modern therapeutic ethic gave up. At some point, you can no longer excuse and justify and explain away and avoid dealing with evil. But it still is at the level of just keep it locked up as though the asylum does its part of hushing up evil, and then the society will do its part by ignoring it. And in parallel, you see how Lori herself changes. What's most striking about this plot, unlike Nightmare on Elm Street, is that the girl is literally learning from the murderer. When the monster chases her, she learns exactly from him to punch through a door, remove the lock from the other side, and so escape. He's trying to get in, she's trying to get out, but it's the exact same series of motions. She learns again from the murderer to start stabbing. She improvises stuff to stab with, and at some point does take his knife. This is not going to be pure. You are going to have to learn from evil. If you don't want to be helpless, you have to understand violence. The way the movie sustains the horror logic is by showing that the girl doesn't want to learn this. Every time she gets something half right, she walks away from it, throws away weaponry, she looks away from the murderer. Who would want to stare at evil? It's perfectly normal to try to look away from evil and try to not do violence. I think that tendency to look away from evil, or even the tendency to look away from difficulty, was a theme that was integrated into uh, Terminator that we'll talk about, where an inability to look at the evil in the face and see it for what it is, is a grave weakness, a grave failing, a potentially fatal failing for the protagonists of all of those movies. I think the Terminator is a thematically very rich movie. It has a political allegory for 1980s nuclear war fears, you can talk about it as a holocaust allegory, you can talk about it as fears about technology running amok, but the central theme in the movie is the arc of Sarah Connor. She's the real protagonist. People tend to remember Sarah Connor as the muscled up, tough guy woman from Judgment Day. They even tend to remember Terminator as being Terminator Judgment Day, a story about a kid growing up. But Sarah Connor is different. She's a young woman and she's not a hardcore fighter, part of a myth and to have this kind of legendary violence surrounding her. 
She starts as a young woman in Los Angeles, dealing with herself and America in the 80s, and everything about her life fails to add up. Nevertheless, she's a heroine. Somehow, the movie suggests that if you were to imagine a post-apocalyptic future, she could somehow redeem that. An astounding claim to make, and there is much in her that can develop. She will react to adversity splendidly. Well, I think the difference between Sarah Connor in Judgment Day and, and Sarah Connor in Terminator is enormous. Judgment Day, her character takes a huge step back. It's betrayal of how her character ends in Terminator. They have to backtrack her development. But Sarah starts off in Terminator. She's an incompetent waitress, and she's a doormat girlfriend. She's a girlfriend to some kind of rich guy that we don't even see because he just ignores her and stands her up on dates. Now, she isn't a teenager the way Nancy is in Nightmare on Elm Street, but she's anxious about her ability to deal with life in mundane ways. Now, I've read James Cameron saying that the story of Terminator is structured in such a way that all the people in Sarah Connor's life who can help her are progressively taken away from her until she's only left to take responsibility for her own survival. She has a small circle of friends. They are killed. The police are taken out of the picture. Finally, even Calvis is killed. And that only leaves Sarah Connor to deal with the Terminator. Now, actually, I was talking to a friend of mine about this movie over the weekend, and he, I thought, made a brilliant point. Every time Sarah Connor sees the Terminator, it looks more and more like itself. The exterior human nature of the Terminator is removed. It becomes less a person, more of a symbol. The only time she defeats the Terminator is when she sees it for what it is. All the humanity has been stripped from it. She is literally facing the Terminator when she kills it and manages to grow up and become an independent, poised adult. That's a great observation. So yes, again you see how, as the movie progresses, certain parts of the plot slip away and the entire setting slips away and you're left with this symbolic confrontation. It seems like this is part of the dream logic of the horror and it works just as surely in Terminator, which has all the gloss of science, as it did in something like Nightmare on Elm Street, which just looks like a kind of surrealist, ugly poetry. The logic of the story gradually replacing plot by symbol is just the same. The adulthood of these latest boomers or earliest Gen Xers turns out to take both a very dramatic confrontational character and also to be caught up in the social situation, as you pointed out, at a much broader level. There's a lot of historical baggage in Terminator that you don't find in the horror movies we've discussed. Those are all about American suburbia and almost exclusively about that domestic situation. In this case, there's a lot of stuff about global problems like science, historical problems like the Holocaust and the development of nuclear warfare, and all of these things also somehow hang upon the characters. At the same time, Sarah Connor's drama takes place in America's second city, LA, whereas the other places are provincial, really, suburban enclaves isolated from the urban scene with all its gritty. The movie starts with this parallel return from the future of Kyle Reese and the Terminator in a state of nature. Turns out that neither of them can deal with things peacefully. You could say that the Terminator is a monster, this guy's a killer. But the truth is that he is confronted with violence too. But Kyle Reese has no interest in hurting anybody, but he still has to do it. Violence and theft are just inevitable to the destitute, as it were. And that speaks to the truth about the city in a way that's completely obscured in the suburban enclave. So from the beginning, the situation of becoming an adult is just very different in a city. You cannot have the assuredness and the good-naturedness of a kind of village community. You're inevitably going to be confronted with everything that makes cities ugly, dangerous. And of course, what does Kyle Reese rips off a homeless man and symbolically becomes a homeless man? Terminator rips off a few gangsters and symbolically becomes a gangster. Two different paths of dealing with starting off at the bottom of society. Yep, they both also steal from the car. Kyle Reese only steals a shotgun. The Terminator, who just seems to be more tech-savvy, takes over the cop car and the radio to get information. There's a conflict between having tech and not having tech. Kyle Reese does the slow class thing, saw off the butt of a shotgun. 
improvised grenades. Not this other guy, he wants real weaponry, state-of-the-art stuff, and even futuristic weaponry. This parallel goes on throughout the movie, taking advantage of tech and being disadvantaged. That's why Kyle Reese loses. In a typical James Cameron form of storytelling, Sarah Connor has to make use of technology to destroy technology, not reject it as much as possible like Kyle Reese does. Well, what's interesting about Kyle Reese, he ultimately sees himself as a loser. Sarah Connor sees him at first as a threat and then as a savior, but Kyle Reese has multiple flashbacks. Everyone has a moment of defeat and calamity, whether it's a car that's overturned that's on fire, or the Terminator infiltrating their underground base, and literally him seeing his photograph of Sarah Connor burning up, and the feeling of helplessness. He couldn't protect her picture, he won't be able to protect her. Kyle Reese understands himself as stoic, but inadequate. Whereas Sarah Connor has to become adequate. She is portrayed in the epilogue scene in Mexico. It's a very different Sarah Connor from the one that we see in the opening of Judgment Day. Now, at the end of The Terminator, what would you say best describes her demeanor? For once, she's relaxed and confident. She's recording tapes to help the education of her son. That's already taking a lot of responsibility and she deals well with it. But part of the work is realizing for herself that she doesn't know exactly what she's doing and this doesn't trouble her. She says, okay, first I have to learn for myself. Then there's her moment with the kid in Mexico who's trying to sell her a picture of herself. She says, nice hustle, kid. Gives the kid his money because the kid needs the money. She's cool and collected. I would say that at the end of the movie, her qualities would be self-possession and stoicism. Despite being pregnant, despite facing the apocalypse alone, she's common-centered. Whereas at the beginning of Judgment Day, she's wild-eyed, insane, and damaged. I think that's a betrayal of her character. The Terminator isn't just a James Cameron movie. It was co-written by Gail and her. And, and she also produced the movie. And Sarah Connor is just a better, more relatable, more credible character. James Cameron, you can tell, feels bad about how he objectifies her body by having her do pull-ups, having her wear a tank top. He has her deliver these pseudo-feminist rants that are completely out of character. There's no hint of that in the first Terminator movie, and that's because he's having trouble developing the character in the absence of Gail and Hurt. The success of Sarah Connor as a character might depend more on Gail and Hurt as a writer and as a producer than is commonly talked about. Cameron's female characters in his next couple of movies, Judgment Day or True Lies, are just not very good. Yeah, I agree with that, but also this is a problem with how Cameron thinks up structures in stories. The reason Sarah Connor turns into a wild-eyed maniac is that he just flipped the relationship between Kyle Reese and Sarah Connor into a relationship between Sarah Connor and her child, John Connor. The thing in common between the two movies is the psychiatrist. The man who was tormenting and taunting Kyle Reese is now doing it to Sarah Connor, and they react in the exact same way. Nobody will believe them, nobody will treat them as human beings, and so they go insane in custody. He just couldn't think up something better to do. I think it's a good point. I also think that the movies are very different in that the primary purpose of The Terminator is to tell stories about character arcs, whereas the primary purpose of Judgment Day is to get the viewer from one action scene to another. It's a spectacle movie rather than a story movie, which doesn't make the movie bad in itself, but if you want to examine the movie as a story, it's just not particularly good. I can defend Judgment Day at a certain level. What's underappreciated about it is that the action scenes present you with symbols. They also make arguments of their own. The parallel endings of the two movies about factories, destruction by technology of technology gone mad, that's important by itself and obvious. There are other things, like the Terminator in Terminator 2 is mimetic. It's a metal that imitates human beings. And one thing that it shows way more than the Terminator in the first movie is cruelty. It imitates human beings so well that it imitates human cruelty. <laughs> the association between technology and the police, between the evil Terminator and the police, is even stronger in the second one. This was actually thought through. Other such similarities deal with the plot. The hand that is left of the original Terminator turns out to be the thing that builds that technology. That's a continuation. It shows, well, technology is a very dangerous thing. Another one is all about the action, the showy stuff, explosions. Near the end, you have a scene with uh, the liquid the metal Terminator being frozen up. The argument there is obvious. Don't we all hope we could freeze technology when bad things happen? When it gets out of hand, just stop it, freeze it. But then it melts, and it turns out, no, you can't. That shows you James Cameron's view of technology. It just has to go on. You have to deal with it somehow, but you need technology to destroy bad technology, and the advancement of technology is just a given. 
all of these action scenes are fairly thoughtful. They're good, and I think the use of special effects through the movie is powerful. If you were to guess one scene from the movie that's most famous, what would you guess? I don't have a good answer to this. I don't actually like all the special effects. The most famous special effects is Sarah Connor on the playground. Uh, oh yeah, the doomsday scenario, the coming of nuclear which, warfare. Which, it occurs in the dream sequence, but that is the most emotionally powerful scene in the movie. It's the only time where Sarah Connor actually seems like the person that we remember from the Terminator. In her nightmare, she's haunted by Judgment Day, technological violence. She's haunted by them in exactly the same way that Kyle Reese is. Even her dreams are not of escape, her dreams are of defeat and horror. Again, they're parallel characters. Yes, it is a very powerful scene, that's true. Now we should talk about the changes in the Terminator himself. I don't know why James Cameron thought that you could bring back this kind of 50s image of jeans and leather jacket as a model of extra-legal manliness for Americans, but he worked at it hard. He also tried to make it up to date in that John Connor in Judgment Day is a young hacker chased by this evil cop. It's about how manliness could develop outside of the law. But some of the problems I have with the movie is from the very first scene, it telegraphs that Arnold Schwarzenegger's Terminator is a good guy because he doesn't kill anybody. His Terminator steals but doesn't do any gratuitous violence. In the first movie, the first person he confronts, he literally puts his hand. In the movie, he just he injures people enough to defend himself and then he just asks for the clothes. At that point, the camera's winking at you in a way it never really does. In Terminator, it's telling you things are going to be okay. Yeah, that's too PG. The moments of moral intensity are always with Sarah Connor. She's trying to destroy the Terminator and she's trying to kill the scientist or the scene you mentioned, her vision of the apocalypse. There you see something that's at least close to the seriousness you find in the original, but there's just not enough of that. Also, John Connor is terribly miscast in the movie. Don't want to insult a child actor, but kid who plays John Connor kind of makes me recognize that this kind of had a point. <laughs> I mean, just, just this no-account whiny little brat. And I know he had a tough life, but did he have to have a high-pitched voice on top of everything else that's dislikable about him? There's some real character and casting issues throughout the second movie. It feels like James Cameron was missing somebody who would just reel him in. Because Sarah Connor, in the first movie, spends a lot of time being scared and helpless, but she never gets annoying, which is what John Connor is at virtually every point in that movie. Sure. In the 90s, he's supposed to be a bit of a heartthrob. The cool clothes and haircut and uh, lingo. And he has his own motorbike. His cut-rate Jimmy Dean. <laughs> but to go back to Sarah Connor, a lot of it hinges on whether this woman can imagine a future for herself. As you pointed out, she's a bad waitress. That's not even up to the standard of mockery of the barista actress in Hollywood. The way her waitress friends reassure her that nothing matters is none of this will matter in a hundred years. That speaks to the movie's problem. Does America have a future or are we self-destructing? Does mankind have a future? But it also speaks to this kind of personal loneliness. Sarah Connor can't believe that she'll have a posterity because she can't imagine herself as a mother. She can't see how progeny might mean that in 100 years she'll matter. And so what her waiter's friend says makes perfect sense, even though it turns out to not be true at all. So also the other thing the waitress friend says about the murders of the Sarah Connors, oh yeah, you're dead, that turns out also not to be true. But the two things turn out to be connected in this form of tragic irony. For Sarah Connor to not be dead, she also has to not be dead in a sense a hundred years from now. That shows just how important this allegory of the Virgin Mary is to her character. That's what Sarah Connor is. Somehow you can't just be a person and deal with your own issues as a woman and whether you want to marry or have kids and what have you, whether there's a place for you in this society or not. It's also got to be about mankind. Do children matter anymore for our humanity? It's also got to be about the future of mankind. Is there any history left after the atomic bomb and the development of this destructive military technology by which we try to buy our safety? And she's caught up in this, just like in another way, she's caught up in the Los Angeles of the 80s. The scenes you see in Los Angeles by night are horrible, by turns disgusting and harrowing, and there's quite a lot of violence there. So also, Los Angeles is this place with clubs called Tech Noir. There's a nice summary of the whole movie. It is Tech Noir. A place where Sarah Connor is above all lonely. There's nobody she can really rely on and she can't even stay at home because her roommate wants to have a good time with her boyfriend. And it is true, everything she has is taken away from her. 
for this kind of safety and anonymity. Just the name in the phone book, who cares? Next is hope that you can stay home. Then the appeal to the friends at home. When she realizes somebody's chasing after her, she doesn't call just the cops. She also calls her friend at the apartment. She wants help from those people. Come pick me up. Turns out you can't rely on them either. As she gradually becomes alone, all personal dangers and the social dangers and her situation recede from sight. And more and more the question becomes, can you find any place for yourself in the future? And that's where Kyle Reese becomes important. Part of this is cliché. She tends to his wounds, as women always do with action men in the movies. But she also has to respond to him in a human way. She sees that there is something human left in Kyle Reese. People don't pay attention to the fact that she was right to fear him. It's not just that he looks like a hobo. He looks like a psycho hobo. And for us who see the movie, it's very hard to distinguish him from the Terminator. The Terminator is just more vile, but otherwise they even look similar, and they're both arming themselves. There's a question whether war has turned Kyle Reese into a monster, because he has to fight monsters. He lives in a situation where you have to ask yourself, are the people with you also monsters? What crawls beneath the flesh? What if it's some kind of evil machine robot? Who tells the difference between humans and robots? Only dogs. Man's best friend turns out to be man's last identity. You have to have a pet to know that you're human. Sarah Connor has to deal with this guy. This whole climax is of course in their scene where they make love. He learns to think of himself as a man because she's so much of a woman and he finally becomes confident. But first it's a matter of working him out of PTSD. It's not just the flashbacks. This guy says, come with me if you want to live treating her in a bullying manner. But the transition between when they meet in this shootout in a club and when they become lovers is when they're on the road in the middle of a set piece, they're being chased by the Terminator. He orders her to start driving. She's literally taking control over where she's going, what she's doing. And then on her own decision, she breaks the car and saves them. Then she talks him out of violence. This is where the cops arrest them. And this guy is about to go crazy and start shooting at cops. She has to talk him out of it in this high-pressure situation. And you can see she's just much more used than he is when it comes to dealing with helplessness. His flashback fantasies of helplessness can't even tell you how he survived. You're upturned in a car on fire, you're in a tunnel with a terminator that's mowing down everything. How did you even survive that stuff? But she can deal with helplessness. And that's how she gradually works him over to humanity. It's a really good scene for character development as she goes from taking control of the car to deciding for both of them how this is going to work out. She is more at home in the world of human beings than he is, and so she should be making the decisions even if he has all the military skills. She should be in charge, not just protected. And it's also worth looking at how that scene changed from the beginning in Tech Noir, where the Terminator is walking by her while she's at the table, and suddenly the can't, the uh, film goes to slow motion and the music slows down. It's such a great moment of symbolizing not only her danger from the Terminator, but the course that her life is on. She's not going anywhere in particular. She's completely isolated. She does not understand the world around her. And she's also completely passive. What happens when the Terminator has the red dot on her forehead? What does she do? Freezes. She doesn't move. But at the beginning of the movie, that's really what she'd been doing the whole time. She'd been a failure as a waitress. It was a relationship failure. We don't know anything about her rich boyfriend, but he's treating her badly. And why is she putting up with it? Because she can't imagine anything better. The scene in the car, when she takes over the wheel, is the beginning of her taking some control over her life having learned something from her own experiences with helplessness. Yes, and you can see how sudden transformation into an adult is for her. The do-or-die moment, a car at high speed, you either deal with it or you don't. From that moment of snapping to attention, she's no longer a deer in the headlights. Up to that point, the movie hadn't been about her. It had only now and then followed what's happening with her to put her down more. But she is suddenly an adult, and from then on you just see the development of stuff that had been going on for her for a while, but had never really brought the moment to its crisis. It would be too much to say she thrives on crisis, but the more important thing is that she survives a crisis without losing her humanity or her mind. After all, that's what's so annoying about her character in Judgment Day. She goes hysterical, she loses her mind. That's not who Sarah Connery is. 
She had more going for her than the movie let you believe, or than she herself believed. She's turning into a heroine, a protagonist, a strong woman, but she's not about being violent, dealing with problems by violence or running away, which is what Kyle Reese always does. She's better able for that reason to understand him than he is able to understand her. And that's very important for how an action movie can show you personal dignity. If you can act well under pressure, then that says a lot about your character. That's why she's a protagonist at the center of a larger myth about the redemption and survival of mankind. I think that's all true, and I also think it's a process that a lot of people go through, but not over the period of about a week. It's over a period of years and years, and it's symbolically compressed into a crisis for the movie. Yes, of course, the movie does justice to the process in a certain sense with Sarah's exasperation. She yells at calories, do I look like the mother of the future? Am I tough, organized? I can't even balance my checkbook. That's a very important moment for self-awareness. For once, she, not the movie, or somebody else can tell you that she knows she's a loser and she's got to deal with it. First of all, she's not afraid to look at herself and see what's wrong. She doesn't need self-flattery or distractions that lie to her about what her actual situation is. And she's not angry with him, she's angry with herself. She knows that she has got to do better than she has done heretofore. That kind of anger is a certain form of shame. She wants to do better. That again shows a certain dignity. She doesn't get defensive or combative. She wants to take stock of herself, which is what defines an adult. It's not about solving every problem, much less thinking about life as a series of problems you're supposed to solve. It's about being able to see what's right and what's wrong with you without lying to yourself. I think that's true, and once again, I think that on the one level, the Terminator acts as a mirror for her as she progressively loses her illusions about her situation, but also loses her illusions about her own incompetence. As she sees the Terminator more and more as itself, she sees her own situation more and more clearly, and is ultimately able to transcend her own situation through this confrontation. What about her as a biological person is different at the point when she becomes symbolically a fully formed adult? She's pregnant. She doesn't know it but that's the moment she finally try to develop stoicism and take personal responsibility it's linked to her pregnancy yeah she is in a certain way ready to be a mother at this point like i said earlier about horror movies the way the poetry works here is not to side with the counterculture nor to side with the dominant or public official culture either it's supposed to show that both have a point that the situation of young people now is really screwed up and insisting on a suburban version of American respectability is not going to cut it. But on the other hand, you do want to be a serious adult who is capable of dealing with things like family and work and self-awareness, treating other human beings as though they too are really human. Trying to work your way between those two bellicose partisan views is really not easy for anybody. Maybe the suffering of Sarah Connor was good for her. Maybe dealing with humiliation and failure and life not working out as she would want to made sure that she would never be feeling entitled. Revealed to her that she had the kind of strength not to let life break her. That reveals a certain spiritedness. Things have to get bad to get good, because when they get bad, she can become good and angry and deal with her anger well. She does need a way to find out that she can make a difference in her own life. All of that depends on this growing awareness that she's been dealt a bad hand, she's not dealt with it well, but there's hope yet if she tries her hardest. There's a reason to be stoic. It's not good in itself, it's good for a certain purpose. You can be human, and that's I think what's meant by the moment when she solves her own problems and unknowingly is already pregnant. She's not yet a mother, but she has to fulfill certain conditions to become a mother. One of them, of course, is pregnancy, but the other one is being an adult human being. If you're going to protect somebody else, you have to be able to deal with yourself. That's why it's the right preparation and a show of good writing. I think that's true. And before we go on to Wonder Woman, I think it's worth pointing out some of the themes that Nightmare on Elm Street and Terminator have in common because it sheds light on James Cameron's comments about Wonder Woman. Several of the things they have in common, well, one, both movies were released in 1984 and within a couple of weeks of each other. Both were made by artistically ambitious directors working within what were then considered trash genres, not high art or any kind of insight. Both movies have female protagonists who grow up and they defeat fantastical and super powerful enemies. And they emerge at the end of those movies as competent, independent adults. Also, both of these movies in our cultural memory don't focus on these female protagonists. We focus on Freddy Krueger, Arnold Schwarzenegger in The Terminator. 
as I was preparing for the podcast, I had to look up Nancy Thompson's name. I didn't remember. I had no idea either. But it's the protagonists that make both of those movies work. Absent the compelling journey of those protagonists, those movies aren't much. Freddy Krueger doesn't make Nightmare on Elm Street movies work because there's a lot of bad Nightmare on Elm Street where he's just as Freddy Krueger as he is in the first one. Terminator 3. Nobody has a deep emotional connection to Terminator 3, even though you have a lot of terminating going on by Arnold Schwarzenegger and other Terminators because you don't buy into the struggles of the human protagonist. And another element that I think they have in common is both Wes Craven and James Cameron work really hard to avoid gratuitously sexualizing Nancy Thompson or Sarah Connor. At no point in the movie do they wear more revealing clothes than you would otherwise expect. These are intentional artistic choices by both Wes Craven and James Cameron. And I think it plays into some of his criticism of Wonder Woman, where she spends the movie running around in a leather miniskirt. He's seeing the movie praised as some kind of feminist breakthrough. He's identifying a real point of bad faith by many of the people who are making a show of praising Wonder Woman. I think James Cameron understands that if he had made exactly this Wonder Woman 30 years ago, the same critics who are praising Wonder Woman as being a feminist movie now would be criticizing that movie for objectifying 30 years ago. Some of the praise of Wonder Woman is hypocritical and opportunistic and exaggerated as a form of performance by the people who are praising it. Yeah, as we discussed in our own podcast on Wonder Woman and the other DC heroes, there's actually a lot to be said in favor of that movie. It's just that none of it has to do with this sort of stuff. And whatever merits the movie Wonder Woman has have not been really touted. So I can see where James Cameron is coming from, and I also think that I can see why he doesn't think about the good stuff that's actually good about Wonder Woman. It's not the way he thinks about female characters, the sort of stuff he worked so hard to bring out in his own movies. His most famous female lead is not Sarah Connor, of course, it's uh, Ripley in Alias. He did uh, a good job of making her a strong character, telling the story of a woman who has to get out of not just fear, but PTSD in order to become responsible for other people's lives and, of course, behave like a mother. There's there's a lot to be said for the Ripley in Aliens. The wife in uh, The Abyss, who divorced Ed Harris because he's just not reliable enough and doesn't treat her so sufficiently respectfully as a woman, not as a feminist or as a gender-neutral society member, as a woman, as the wife. That's also actually a good character, and so he has a certain right to say, I do better at writing than this sort of stuff, and why are we pretending that what's obviously a cover girl is some kind of heroine? I think that's all true. This concludes the first part of our discussion. We will continue next week with Wonder Woman as well as the discussion of the Marvel and DC movies in terms of what writers need to learn from their successes and failures so that sequels are at least as good as their originals.